All right, folks, good evening. A couple things. I want to thank you all for being such an encouragement to my son last week. He really appreciated being here and uh, being able to teach, and you guys were great. Uh, you weren't too hard on him, so we're, we're glad about that. But uh, thank you. Thank you. Let's see. Don't forget, we've got two more weeks, counting this week. We've got this week and next week, and then we take a two-week break. And then when we come back from the break until we stop for the holidays, we're not only going to be going into Second Peter, but I think we're going to be able to get into the book of Jude. And for any of you that's never studied the book of Jude, I, I hope you guys will be able to come back and be with us through Second Peter and Jude. If there was a, a one-line sort of advertisement for both of those books, it would be how to live faithfully in difficult times, uh, because that's what those books are about. So I hope you'll come back after the break. We're going to finish up 1 Peter this week and next. And then after the break, we'll do 2 Peter and Jude. All right. So all the preliminaries are done. It's good to see you guys. I missed you last week, but it is nice to have a son that I can call up and say, you're my son, you need to do this. No, uh, he actually enjoys doing it. And uh, I think he's going to follow in his dad's footsteps. And so it's good experience for him as well. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, surprisingly, right. My wife and I had nothing to do with it. Uh, uh, anyway, so, First Peter. Let's dive into it tonight, alright? Uh, I want to begin in First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And the reason I wanted to begin there is even though we sort of uh, went into chapter 4 a little bit a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to start there because... I wanted to, to start tonight with this point, and that is that as Christians, we in a sense are involved with a struggle, well I'm up way too high, I'm going to sit back down, there we go, we are involved with a struggle, but that struggle we have to remember this, we are fighting, if you will, and that's maybe not the best term to use. We are struggling, whatever. We're in a battle. But we are fighting from victory. We are not fighting for victory. The victory has already been won for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, remember this book has been has been written to people who are involved in heavy persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero they need some encouragement and so throughout this book it is an encouraging letter to these Christians who are dealing with all of this suffering and persecution and one of the things that Peter wants them to be reminded of is that they're fighting from victory not for victory because in 1 Peter 3.18, he reminds us that Jesus Christ has won victory over sin. He has won victory in 1 Peter 3.18 over death. And then even in verse 19, he has proclaimed his victory over all of the demonic forces. Now, I'm going to tell you that one, this is a passage that if you study 1 Peter 3.18 through the rest of the chapter... It is, for some people, the most difficult passage to interpret in all the Bible. In fact, Martin Luther, okay, uh, a great theologian, said, I have no idea what this is talking about. So don't 
feel bad is if you read and you study this passage of Scripture that you have maybe a hard time grasping all that Peter's trying to bring out here. But I would just like to touch on something here tonight, and I don't want to get bogged down on it because it can get pretty heavy. But I think it's very interesting and something that in the mind, we could never deal with this on a Sunday morning, but in a place like the mind, we can deal with it. And that is this. In 1 Peter 3, 19, the Bible says that Jesus Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Spirits that were associated with the days of Noah. What in the world is this talking about? I believe that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, went out of the world. And you remember that three hour period while his body was hanging on the cross and there was darkness over all the world? I believe that in a sense the light of the world went out of the world for a few hours, went down to a place where a group of demonic forces had been chained since the days of Noah and proclaimed victory over Satan and all of the demonic world. Because this word preached, in order to come to that interpretation, this word preached is not the normal word that's used to share the gospel. It is not the word eugelezo, or where we get the word evangelism from, to, to herald the good news. It is the word in the Greek caruso, and it means to proclaim victory. So we know that Jesus Christ wasn't going somewhere, giving some, somebody somewhere a second chance to go to heaven. That's not what this verse teaches. And yet, again, we've got to be careful how we interpret Scripture because some come to this passage and that's what they teach. Other people believe that, you know, well, okay, Jeff, first of all, why would Jesus go to these particular... And why are these demons chained in the first place? Again, you've got to go back to the book of Genesis. You find there that what is happening is that Satan realizes from Genesis 3.15 on that his nemesis, the Messiah, is going to come through a woman, a human woman. And so Satan begins to think that one way that I can mess up the plan of God is to corrupt the human race. If I can somehow corrupt the human race through which the Messiah will come, because God predicted in Genesis 3.15 that Messiah would come through a human woman. If Satan could mess that up, then guess what? Messiah can't come. Messiah can't die. Messiah can't resurrect. And therefore, guess what? We're still living in our sin. And you realize that in the days of Noah, even though God wasn't up there wringing his hands, worried about somehow being out of control and that this thing was getting out of his control, that you and I realize from our perspective, that there was a point in history where this world was down to one family. Noah, his wife, his three sons and three daughters. And that was it. That was it. Satan had it down to eight people. And that's what makes the story of the ark and Noah and all that so important. Because God had to preserve that one family because then that one family was what started the world all over again. So that one day... He could send an angel to Mary and say, Mary, uh, what is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit, and here comes the Messiah through the offspring of the woman. You see, a couple things that Peter is reminding us of here. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, it looked like evil had won. Satan was victorious. 
and we realize, no, 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 Satan, don't, don't celebrate too quickly here. Even though Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead. He conquered death. And so you, it might have looked like you won. And, and even in the days of Noah, you got it down to one family. It might have looked like you almost won, but God was in complete control. And the reason why I think Peter is using this imagery and these stories and these principles is because in the people he's writing to are suffering under the great Roman Emperor Nero. And, and he is persecuting them, and he's killing them, he's murdering them, he's putting them on stakes, he's crucifying them all over the Roman Empire, and it probably looks to them like God has lost and evil has won. And he is reminding them about these victories that God has had and the ultimate victory that God has had through Jesus Christ, and the fact that though at times in our life it may look like God is not in control and, and evil is winning and whatever, to please, Peter says, keep these things in mind, especially the mighty victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in the book of Romans that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, Romans chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he says that we always triumph in Christ. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is a winner? He's not a loser. And therefore, everyone who's associated with Jesus Christ is not a loser. You are a winner because you are associated with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never lost anything and never will lose anything. And those of us who are associated with him must look at it from that perspective. And that's what Peter's trying to get these people to see. Now, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but some are going to say, okay, I thought the Bible taught the demonic forces, again, under the sovereignty of God, were allowed to roam free. Wasn't when Jesus was on the earth, he had encounters with demon-possessed people and demons, all that? Yeah. And that's why you've got to study this out. Because my question is, what did these demonic forces do that was different from all the other demonic forces to the point where God would chain them in the bottomless pit until the day of judgment? And the only biblical explanation that you can come up with when you study the Bible is it goes back to Genesis chapter 6 where these demonic forces were used by Satan to try to corrupt the line of humanity in order to prevent the Messiah from coming through humanity. In fact, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 that the offspring of these Unions became known as the Nephilim, this race of mighty warrior giants that were sort of like, they weren't just, you know, average human beings. In fact, it's very interesting that, you know, anything that, that man has come up with sometimes has some little nugget of truth inside of it. So when you talk about Roman mythology and Greek mythology and these things where you've got people like a Hercules who's sort of half God, half man. Where did people come up with that idea? Well, you see, I think it was passed down from before Noah and even after Noah that there was at one time a race of Nephilim on the earth, sort of incorporating, you know, these powers that just normal average human beings didn't have. And that's how some of these then things like 
Greek mythology and Roman mythology, I think, came about. It was because of this strange union. And see, God put boundaries on the demons and said, look, you've, you've got this freedom to work within this sphere. If you go outside of that sphere, I'm going to have to do something. And the Bible clearly teaches in 2 Peter, and we're going to get to those verses when we study 2 Peter, and then in the book of Jude, that these certain group of demons went outside the boundaries that God set, and that's why they are in chains in the bottomless pit until the day of judgment. And I believe it is these demons that Jesus Christ went to and proclaimed his victory while physically he was hanging on the cross. Now, I realize some of you are like, Oh my golly, you know, where, never heard that one before, okay? But again, just 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, that while the context is dealing with his death, burial, and resurrection, you'll notice that Peter reminds us he went and preached, again, the word is not euegledzo, evangelize, it is caruso, to proclaim a victory, to the spirits in prison, all right? After they were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So they were associated with the time of Noah. And if you go back and read Genesis chapter 6, and then you cross-reference it over to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude verses 6 and 7, you will find an amplification of this weird story from the Bible, all right? The point I want to make for how we can practically apply this to our lives is simply this. What Peter is reminding us of in this passage is this. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is victorious. He's victorious over the demonic forces. He's victorious over death. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over everything. And therefore, we don't need to fear. We don't need to to think that somehow, is Jesus Christ going to supply me with what I need to get through what I'm going through? Peter would say, yes, yes, and yes. All right, again, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. The victory has already been won. So at the very end of chapter 3, you'll notice then why Peter writes what he does. Because notice then, he reminds us that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus now has went into heaven, he is at the right hand of God, where angels and authorities and powers are subject to him. Now, we usually take the angel part as referring to the good angels, if you will. The Gabriels, the Michaels, those who have aligned themselves with God. But every time you study the New Testament, and you come across the word principalities and powers, like you do in Ephesians chapter 6, which talks about our spiritual warfare, is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities and powers of this dark world, it's always referring to demonic forces. And so what Peter is reminding us of here, again, at the end of chapter 3, is, again, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And, and we, we need to respect the demonic world, but we don't need to fear Satan or the demonic world because Jesus has gained victory over the demonic world. And he has rendered Satan and the demonic world powerless as far as the power that they can have over us. They can tempt us, they can lie to us, but it's up to us to give in to those temptations 
and to give in to those lies and begin to believe those lies. But we don't have to. Because the power that Jesus Christ gives and the victory that he gives is complete victory. It's not a partial victory. And so therefore we can't say, well, as Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. No, the devil can't make us do anything. The devil can tempt us, but he can't make us do anything. We choose to give in to him, but the power that we have is greater than his. In fact, one of the reasons why I tell people that it's so important that we study the Bible, you know, why, why should Christians study the Bible so diligently? Because your adversary knows the Bible. If you recall, when Jesus tempted, when, when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, that the devil used scripture. Now, he used it out of context, and he twisted it, but he still used it. See, the devil knows the Bible. And so we have to be very careful. We, we have to know the Bible because we know our adversary knows the Bible and he will use God's word even against us because he will take it out of context. He will use a little bit of truth, mix it with a lot of error, and that's where we get into trouble if we don't study the Bible and don't know what the Bible really says. Because as I've said before, it's very easy to turn down a bottle that's sitting on my shelf that is black and dark and has a skull and crossbones on it and says poison on it. I, I won't touch that. But a gallon of milk with a couple drops of poison, I, I might be susceptible to that. Because there might be just a little bit of poison in that whole gallon of milk and it's going to be very hard for me to maybe smell it or to taste it or whatever. And that's exactly how Satan works. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that when Satan and the demonic forces come against us, that many times they come as ministers of righteousness. They look good on the outside. And 90% of what they might say to us is truth. But they're also going to weave 10% of error in there. And it's the 10% of error that can get us every time. That's why we've got to study the Bible. Because our adversary, our enemy knows the Bible and he uses it against us. So the more we study the Bible and the more we read the Bible, the more we will be equipped to stand up to the attacks of Satan. Remember, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that as Christians, we should not be ignorant of the strategies of the devil. All right, again, shouldn't fear him, respect him, but we should not be ignorant of the strategies of the devil. And the devil and his demonic forces have a specific strategy that they are using on each of us as individuals. You see, they don't use the same strategy on all of us. They, they observe us. They watch us. They see what our weaknesses are, what our strengths are, and they devise a specific personal strategy of attack for every believer. No wonder, Paul says, we have to be into the Word. We have to take the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon that God gives us, all the other weapons, if you will, spiritual weapons, are all defensive so that we can stand against the wiles, the strategy of the devil. But the one weapon that God gives us offensively is the Word of God, which Paul says is the sword of the Spirit. That's what Jesus used when he was tempted. He just took the Word of God and took it right back into Satan's face. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God in the Old Testament says, I will honor my word even above my own name. That's pretty big. And so we need to honor his word. We need to read his word. We need to study his word. 
And that's what being a part of something like the mind and why that is so important. Just one other thought and then I'll stop. Then go into chapter 4. Because notice then he uses this military metaphor. He says, so since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude. The same attitude as Christ. And this word arm in the Greek language spoke of a Greek soldier putting on his heaviest armor and his best weapons. And God is saying, I've given you all the resources that you need to stand up. Arm yourself. Put on those weapons. Arm yourself with the attitude and with the mind of Christ. If Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer. You see, we will suffer as Jesus suffered. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, the disciple is not above his teacher. If the teacher suffered, we're going to suffer. So one of the things that Peter points out here to these folks is, look, folks, don't be so upset or disillusioned or discouraged or uh, astonished that you're suffering. If Jesus suffered, you and I will suffer sometimes for the cause of Christ and for being a Christian. Notice he goes on to say, so since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude because the one who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. Meaning, if I'm willing to put my faith on the line at the point of persecution, then I, I, I'm up to a whole new level spiritually. You see, because some people shrink back from that. Some people are not willing to suffer for what they believe. They don't have that kind of conviction or commitment. And what Peter is simply saying here is he's saying, a person who's willing to suffer for their faith, for doing what's right and still suffering for it, that's a whole other level of being a Christian. For notice, verse 2, because then you begin to have the mindset that the rest of your time on earth is not going to be spent focused upon the things of the earth, upon human desires, but your focus is going to be on the will of God, verse 2. For the time has passed before you knew God, when you were involved in all those things. I'm not going to read them all, but, but Paul, Peter is just simply saying, look, guys, before you came to know God, you had different priorities, you had a different purpose in life. But now that you know God, you and I should live the rest of our time putting Him first in our life and having a whole new purpose and a whole new set of priorities. So, remember the victory that Jesus gave us and remember that we will suffer as Jesus suffered. Comments? Questions? Yes. Uh, let me give you a reason for it, but not the only reason for it. But I think this reason that I give you is applicable to all of us here. Oh, if, if Satan knows the Bible and he knows he's going to lose, then why is he still fight? Uh, there's many different answers I could give for that. But one is this sin is deceptive. Sin is the Bible says, blinds us. It makes us spiritually nearsighted, if you will. We can't see far off. And so understand that when Satan rebelled against God, sin totally took him over and has taken him over for quite a long time. 
And even though he's very intelligent, he's very crafty and all of that, and we need to respect him, we also have to understand that that rebellion against God has rendered him deceived himself and blind. I mean, to the point where even that he thought he could overtake God in the first place. Because sin blind. And that's why. And the reason I give that answer is because that's why even for us, if we get caught up into sin, or we know a friend or family member who gets caught up into sin, and we're stepping back and we're looking at the choices and decisions we're making, and we're going... How come they can't see where they're going and what's going to happen? It's so clear to me. How come they can't see it? The reason they can't see it is because the nature of sin is that it's deceptive. It blinds us to the ultimate ramifications and consequences of what... You see, when sin takes a person's life, all they focus on is the here and now. So that's part of the nature of sin. So that's why people can go out and and do something really stupid, and, 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 and we might even say, why did I do that, or why did they do that? Don't they realize how many people they were going to hurt, and all the ramifications? No, because when you begin to go down that road, and you make that choice of sin, all you can see in front of you, as the Bible says, is the pleasure of sin for a short time. You can't see past the pleasure of sin to see all the hurt and all the consequences and all the ramifications after. That's the nature of sin. And so that's why, because that's true for us as well. That's why it's important that we, you know, confess our sin and stay clean with God as much as possible. Because the more we allow sin to take a foothold in our life, the more blind, the more deceived we're going to be as well. Yes, Mike and Certainly Satan is trying to hurt God by pulling as many people away from or keeping as many people away from God as he possibly can. Yes. Deceiving as many as possible. Uh, the question I had, you know, when you were talking earlier about uh, the Lord going down into the, the prison, uh, you talked about going back to the, the group of uh, spirits that tried to pollute the line. Right. Good word. Pollute. Yeah. So... The question I have is, does, did Satan, is, I understand he was like the most powerful angel of all, so he had the power to know the future, to know what God had planned. Oh, no, no. Uh, Satan has no attribute of God like that, to know what's happening ahead of time. But in Genesis, when he tempted Eve, uh, and God pronounced a curse upon humans, and then upon the serpent, part of that curse was his announcement that part of that curse was going to be that at one time in history, an offspring of a woman was going to, in a sense, give you a fatal blow. So Satan knew from Genesis 3.15 on that at some point in history, God had a plan to bring the Messiah through a human being. Yeah. But no, that I, I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah, back here and then. I was just going to say the same thing that Mike said. Satan, Satan doesn't care about us. There's, there's no love for Satan. He just wants to hold as many people. If he can't away from God, he wants to hurt God. Right. He's after, he's after God with his heart. Yeah, if, if, if he can't get us as far as our soul goes, the next best thing for Satan is to discourage us from becoming all that God created us to be as a new creation in Christ. 
That's the next best thing. So that's why Satan works on Christians. Because he, he can't get our soul, but he can totally defeat us and discourage us from becoming all that God uh, wants us to become in, in Christ as a new creation. Yes? No, no, I, I think that, I think that um, by speaking the truth to, to Satan, if you feel like you're being attacked and he's throwing out his lies and, and you're, you know, the accuser of the brethren is working on you, that you need to use the word of God. That's the best thing. But I do think we do need to respect the devil. I think we need to respect angelic beings and demons. Again, they've been defeated. But they are very powerful. And let me give you a couple verses from the book of Jude that we're going to get into in a couple weeks that might whet your appetite. Go to Jude, and Jude is only one chapter. So I can't say Jude chapter. It's only one chapter. And it's the tiny book right before the book of Revelation. And we're going to talk about why that's key. When they put the Bible together, it is no accident that they picked the book of Jude to go right before the book of Revelation. All right? Very key. All right? Uh, if you go to Jude, look at verse 8. Now, in the context here, he, again, he's talking about judgment. He's talking about the judgment of, of uh, well, let's look at it here. Let's begin in verse 6. I'll give you another verse that ties in with this whole thing about these angels that did not, did not keep their proper boundaries that God gave them. Verse 6 of Jude, you also know, that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain, but abandoned their own place of residence, he has kept in eternal chains and utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. And those are the de demons that I believe Jesus went down to. Alright? Again, the question has to be asked, why are most demons allowed to roam free? And, and we know that because Jesus ran into them, and, his, and, and we know that. They're... they're then why are a certain group chained up? What did they do to get that? Well, again, the only biblical explanation is Genesis chapter 6. Then notice he also ties it into the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, which speaks of the time of Genesis. So also, Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to those angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Now, notice this. Yet these men, as a result of their dreams, and he's speaking here about false teachers at this point, defile the flesh, notice, reject authority, or despise authority. They are not respectful of authority. And insult the glorious ones. Again, I think speaking of angelic beings. Now, notice the biblical thing. It ties in with Christian's question. Verse 9. But even when Michael... The archangel was arguing with the devil and debating with him concerning Moses' body. He did not dare to bring a slanderous judgment, but said, may the Lord rebuke you. Do you see that? Even Michael did not rebuke Satan. So that's why when I hear people saying, yeah, I went around rebuking Satan, I'm like, 
like, my Bible tells me that Michael the archangel did not feel that he should rebuke Satan. Alright? Now, a lot of people wonder, where in the world... Remember, when Moses died, the Bible says that God took Moses' body, and probably the reason was because God knew that Moses' body would become an idol, and that people would worship the body of Moses rather than worshiping the one who created Moses, which is what people do, you know. That's why I believe God hid the ark, because what will people do if they ever find Noah's ark? They won't worship the creator, they'll worship the ark. We see that all the time. People make idols out of everything. And so there's times in history where God hides things, like the Ark of the Covenant, and Noah's Ark, and the body of Moses. And so here's Satan. Satan wants the body of Moses. I mean, can you... Here's, here's Michael and Satan arguing over Moses' dead body, you know. I mean, if you've never read Jude, it's like, wow, I didn't know that. You know, pretty cool, huh? But the cool thing is this. Michael says to Satan, I'm not going to rebuke you. Even Michael the archangel says, I'm not going to rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Yeah, I saw a hand over here somewhere. Yes. Right. Yes, the blinding. Right. And I think that's why, if you read the Gospels, especially later on, like in the last few chapters of Matthew and Luke, when Jesus is teaching and leaving his disciples, his followers, with some final details and principles, one of the main things he hammers on is watchfulness and being alert. To never get comfortable and complacent in my Christian life and just put it on cruise control. He's always saying, be alert, be watchful, watch and pray, you know, constantly. Because there is that principle that we need to always sort of stay on our toes, spiritually speaking. Uh, because that can really give the devil a foothold. Yes? Yes. Now, it's a great point, Jeff. Yeah, good point. I, usually what I do is this. I, do, I pray and ask Jesus to help, and then if I feel like I'm very much being oppressed by demonic forces, I'll just use Scripture. I will start quoting Scripture because the devil hates the Word of God. Uh, and I will just begin to... to if, if the devil begins to throw a lie in my head or something that doesn't line up with the Word of God, then I will ask the Holy Spirit maybe to remind me of a verse that contradicts the lie of the devil so that I can use the truth of God like Jesus did when he was tempted to, you know, because like, you know, the devil said, well, the Bible says that, that God won't prevent, you know, you from getting hurt and, 
And you know, that's when he was tempting Jesus to go up on the, the mount and to throw himself off. And then that's when Jesus said, yeah, but the Bible also says, don't tempt the Lord your God. So Jesus just used the word of God right back on Satan. And I think that's what we have to do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have the power. Yeah, yeah, through him. Yeah. Let's go on in First Peter. Another reason that we suffer sometimes comes from embracing a new lifestyle. Remember, the people that Peter was writing to back in First Peter chapter 4, verse 4, were people who were beginning to break away maybe from... They're all beliefs. And because of that, guess what? That was causing some problems. Notice what Peter says. He says, so they, the people that you used to say run with, that's the word I'll use, are astonished when you do not run with them anymore, doing the same things you used to do. In fact, notice, he says, they not only are surprised you don't do them anymore, but they begin to vilify you for not doing it. Now, I think this is, makes pretty common sense because any of us who've been there, we know what that's like. We've lived through it where we might have a group of friends that you know, we used to go out and do things with that before we came to Christ, that once we came to Christ and got that new power and that new purpose in life and those new priorities, a lot of those old things weren't important anymore or as important. So we began to sort of change our priorities and change our schedule and make different plans. And then these people are like, whoa, don't, don't you like me anymore? Am I not your friend? It's like, no, you don't understand. But, but I have Christ in my life now and I've got a whole... And, and they don't understand it, but they're astonished. At, and they begin to make fun and they begin to... And that's exactly what the Bible says. They don't understand why your life is not the same. In other words, again, for them... They're just going to look at Jesus or God as just something you just tack on to everything else in your life. And th- th- a relationship with God isn't going to ch- change your life. You should, your life should be the same after you come to God that it is before. So when our life begins to change, and if you truly come to Christ, it will change. 2 Corinthians 4, any man in Christ is going to be a new creation. Old things are going to begin to pass away. Other things are going to begin to come new in our life. As our life begins to change, they're going to look and go, what's up with you? And that's part of sometimes why that, where the suffering comes from. Uh, and then in verse 5 and 6, he says, They will face a reckoning if they don't come to Christ before Jesus Christ, who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead... Not that the gospel was preached after they died. It doesn't teach that they get a second chance. It's saying that the gospel was preached to people who accepted the gospel, but now they're dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. My wife and I had a discussion about these verses a couple weeks ago. It was a very good discussion. We have good discussions about the Bible. And... uh, I was just trying to share with her that I believe what these verses teach is that the last earthly effect of sin is physical death. 
So believers, even though we know Christ and all our sins are forgiven and we're on our way to, we still have to die physically. Not because we're being punished, not because we're being judged in a sense, but because we've got to lay this flesh down so that God can give us a new glorified body. All right? So, but for Christians, physical death does not lead to judgment or condemnation. It leads to eternal life. So that the judgment of men is not the final word for the Christian. Again, these would have been comforting, encouraging words to a group of people who were dying. Or to a group of people who were seeing their family and friends die on crosses and on stakes by the Emperor Nero every day. Be like, wow. But Peter's saying, hey, the worst thing Nero can do to your friends and family is kill the body. But they're going to live in heaven forever. So don't worry about the fact that somehow you think that Nero or evil has gotten the last word. And the other principle then that we have here is that heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Jesus said in John 14, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus promised his followers that he's going to go and prepare a place for them, but that place is going to be for those who've made preparations on this side of eternity, not on the other side of eternity. When you get there, it's too late. Just like it was in the days of Noah, when the people in Noah's day laughed when Noah said, My God told me it's going to rain. And it had never rained. And they're like, rain? What's rain? Judgment? What judgment? I don't even believe in God. There's no God. And for 120 years, Noah faithfully built that ark and preached the word of God to those people. For 120 years. And he never got one person converted. Do you realize today... That if he was judged by our evangelical Christianity, we would label Noah a failure. We would say, Noah, you never got one person to follow you. You never got one person saved. But yet the Bible says that Noah was a great preacher. A great preacher. That's what the Bible says. You see, so what that points out is this. I'm not responsible for people's response. I'm just responsible. You are just responsible to be faithful to what God's called you to do. The response is between them and God. What about his six kids? In a sense, he influenced them. Yeah. But nobody else on the earth but Noah's family. That was it. I mean, let's face it, folks. That That would be deemed a failure today. Noah would be like, didn't build a big church, did you, Noah? You know, you only had eight people in your church. Not a very big, successful ministry. But you see, God doesn't base His evaluation of our life on all that other He bases it on how faithful we are to His Word and to His command. And God came to Noah and said, Noah, I want you to warn these people for 120 years and I want you to build an ark. And that's what Noah did. And God will reward Noah and has rewarded Noah because Noah was faithful. He wasn't maybe successful, but he was faithful. 
You see, and the reason I share that, folks, is don't get discouraged if you go out and invite 100 people to come to Cornerstone with you and nobody says yes, or you give the gospel to 100 people and nobody says yes. God's going to reward you for being faithful to taking it, seizing the opportunities God gives you. God's not going to hold you responsible if they say no. That's between them and God. So don't be discouraged. All God says is, is go and share. It's up to them whether they have the heart that's going to open up to what God says. But here's the point I want to make. For 120 years, God tried to reach out to those people. You see, some people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he was such a mean, wrathful, hateful God. And Listen, God warned and warned and warned and warned people for years before his judgment fell. Years. He always gave people plenty of warning. Just like today. And that's why I use this example, because the Bible says, Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Luke, that just like in the days of Noah, it's going to be just like that before the Son of Man comes back. What's that mean? It means that people, he said, are just going to be marrying. They're going to be raising families. They're going to be going to the grocery store. They're going to be going to their job. They're just going to be doing their everyday routine. And then all of a sudden, boom, God comes. Because they're caught up in their little lives with no consciousness of God, just like the people in Noah's day. And when that rain started to fall in Noah's day, all of a sudden, oh my goodness. But once Noah and his family entered the ark, very interestingly, the Bible doesn't say that Noah shut the door of the ark. If you read the account of the ark, the Bible says God shut the door of the ark. Because he shut it from the outside, not from the inside. And when that door of the ark was shut, all those people outside the ark perished. Because they weren't in the ark. And the ark in the Old Testament is a beautiful picture of Jesus. And that's why the Bible says, if you and I enter into the ark of safety, a relationship personally with Jesus Christ, we will be saved as Pastor Ron talked about on Sunday. And part of our salvation, as he talked about, is not just being saved from the penalty of sin, but it's also being saved, as we're talking about tonight, from the power of sin. And one day our salvation is even going to render us safe from the very presence of sin. So we will enter into a heaven filled with glory and there will be no more sin, no more death. Everything is good for all of eternity. But as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. So heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And we've got to make that preparation on this side. In a sense, before the door of the ark is shut. And we need to make sure that when those opportunities come, to share the gospel with people, that we take those opportunities. Because notice verse 7, and I'll stop here in just a few moments. Because Peter says, folks, the culmination of all things is near. The coming of Jesus Christ is closer now than it was yesterday or last week, last month, last year. So, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. One of the principles that Peter is saying is, guys, one of the things you need to keep doing, even in the face of all the difficulties and trials and persecution you're going through, is to continue to pray Prayer is so important to endurance in the Christian life and perseverance. 
But in order to pray properly, you and I have got to keep our emotions under control so we can pray. If we're filled with panic and we're like, ah, 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 are we really going to be in a mindset to be able to calm ourselves to the point of truly talking to God? No. And that's why Peter says, so be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. You see, he ties the fact that we need to emotionally remain calm and collected in spirit because we know and have come to believe that God is in control. And even though my world may be looking like it's upside down, that God is still in control. And if I keep that calm and collected spirit, that's going to help. That's going to be huge because that's going to even motivate me in my prayer life. You see, that's why Jesus Christ could give us a great example when he stood before Pilate. You know, Jesus wasn't like, oh man, I might, I might have to go to the cross and die. No, he was in complete control. He wasn't, you know, it was the disciples who wanted to cut off people's ears and stab them and stuff and prevent Jesus from being arrested. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested because it was the plan of God. Because he knew God was in complete control. And so when the world begins to look like God is not in control, we've got to walk by faith, not by sight, and realize God is in control and remain calm and collected and pray. Because let me, let me have you turn back to the Gospel of Luke. This is a passage I shared with the ladies a couple weeks ago in our ladies' Bible study on Wednesday morning. It's a great encouragement for prayer. Luke chapter 18. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is teaching in parables. And he tells us at the very beginning of this parable what the parable's all about. I like that. I don't even have to figure it out. I can just read the first verse. It's like cliff notes for the Bible, you know. Notice in Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told them a parable to show them they should always pray and not lose heart. That word could also mean give up, throw in the towel, become discouraged, become depressed, you name it. Think about that. Jesus says, you know the prescription for endurance, for perseverance, for hanging in there, for not throwing in the towel, for not becoming discouraged or depressed? My prayer life. Men, women, young people ought always to pray and not to faint. But if we were honest, we would all probably say as Christians that one of the things I struggle with more than anything else in my Christian life is my prayer life. And then we wonder why we have a lot of Christians who are struggling, who are waving the white flag, who are dropping out and saying, I can't take it anymore. That's why Paul encourages in Galatians, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you do not faint. But there's so many out there who are fainting. What if you know you're a chicken? You know you're what? A chicken. Through prayer you can become a rooster. Prayer is, I'm telling you, prayer is the key. I mean, what did Jesus say before he went to the cross that day? He told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, pray, pray, don't fall asleep, pray that you enter not into temptation. 
And I believe that if they would have taken his advice and they would have prayed, they would have had the strength to stand up and not run and not deny the Lord the very next day. The reason they lacked that strength is because they did not think that prayer was a priority. And I know in my life, I'm just telling you, I know in my life when I fall flat on my face as a Christian, it's because I'm not spending time in prayer. You see, prayer is a great uh, thing that, that shows us and God that our, our humility. It's saying to God, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you, so I need to pray. I need to get on my knees and pray. I need you. It is pride, like the pride of the devil that raised him up to say, I'll be my most high God. It is pride that says, God, I don't need you. Going back to what Ron's message was, I can do it what? On my own. Well, guess what? On my own equates to lack of prayer. Because you show me a Christian who's enduring and persevering in spite of the trials and difficulties and whatever, and I'll show you a Christian who's making prayer a priority in their life. The man, they're praying. You show me a Christian who's struggling or who I say has that roller coaster Christian life. They're way up one day and then way down the next and way up one week and way down the next. And I'll show you a Christian who has a very inconsistent prayer life. Pretty powerful stuff. I mean, it, it's not hard to understand. It's just hard to put into practice. isn't it? Because again, guess what? Guess where the enemy is going to try to do everything he can he, the enemy knows the importance of prayer. So the enemy is going to do everything he can to keep us from praying. Our flesh is going to do everything it can because our flesh wants to be independent from God. Our flesh wants to do things on our own. Our flesh does not want to depend upon God. And prayer is like this great vehicle that just screams dependence upon God. And yet it is the secret of endurance and perseverance. But notice this. After Jesus gives this parable, notice at verse 8 what he says. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes back to earth, will he find faith on earth? The implication is not as much as he would like to. And notice that this parable is about prayer. And so he's also then tying faith to prayer. And saying that also it takes faith to be able to pray. Because if I truly believe the promises, and if I truly believe God cares, and all, then I'm going to be motivated to pray. But if I don't believe those things, then guess what? Prayer's not going to be that important. So he also ties faith in and weaves faith in with prayer as well. Prayer's huge, folks. I always share, share with people, i got to keep it simple because I'm simple. And I believe that God wants it simple. He doesn't want this complicated. I think we make the Christian life a lot harder than it has to be. I've always said I think there's just two keys to the Christian life. My relationship to the Bible and my prayer life. My relationship to the Bible and my prayer life. If, if, if you show me a Christian who has a healthy relationship with God's Word and they're reading it faithfully and they're studying it faithfully... And they're talking to God, and God's talking to them, and they have a healthy prayer life. I'll show you a Christian who's pretty dynamic. You know, you don't, because all those other things that we might think about are important always come back to the Bible and our prayer life. In, in some way, they're affected by that. Even our service. 
You want to be a great servant for God? Fill your, fill your life with the Bible and with prayer. You'll be a dynamic servant of God. Let me go back to 1 Peter and then I'm just going to stop a little bit early for any comments or questions. The other thing he says here uh, in verse 8 is after he says, keep your emotions under control so you can pray, is be quick to forgive the stupid things other people do. Notice he says, above all, keep your love for one another fervent because love covers a multitude of sins. Guys, the last thing we need to do is start biting and devouring each other when we're going through tough times. And yet, isn't it easy when we go through tough times to begin to take it out on each other? I find that all the time. I've been a pastor for almost 23 years and, and a lot of marriage counseling is when the individual spouse is having a tough time and guess who they take it out on? The person who's there. <laughs> their spouse. That's the way we are. We, we take out our frustrations and our anger and our hurt and our pain on those sometimes who we love the most and who are closest to us. And our brothers and sisters in Christ are like that as well. And so he's saying, guys, even if they do something stupid, realize you're on the same team. You need each other. You need to encourage each other instead of start biting and devouring each other. So have that fervent love, that stretched out love, that rubber band love, if you will. That's what the word literally means. Stretched out, you know, not not quick to snap. You see, a love that's not fervent, that's not stretched out, will be quick to snap and critical and all of that of other people. But a love that's stretched out is like God's love. Because let's face it, we do stupid things. Okay, I shouldn't say that. I do stupid things, and God has a very big rubber band for my life. And I, in turn, then, if I'm going to follow his example, need to have that as well. And then, the next verse, verse 9, stop complaining and start sharing what God has given you. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. You see, again, in this day, a lot of these Christians, when they said, yeah, I'm going to follow Christ, they lost everything. They might have lost all their worldly possessions, their home, goods, and all. And so other Christians needed to sort of say, guys, you might, I've got a little bit I'll, I'll share with you, and then not go, yeah, I'll share it with you. Yeah, you know. If we're going to do something, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. And so I tell people, look, if you want to help out somebody or give something, then do it cheerfully, because if you can't do it cheerfully, then don't do it at all. Because God looks at our motives as well as our actions. And, and, and if, if we're grumbling and complaining about serving and helping somebody out, then just don't do it. But do it and do it with the right attitude. And so he's saying not only do we need each other and we need to keep encouraging each other during these tough times. And you know what, guys? I really do believe the coming of the Lord is really soon. And I think we're living in amazing times, an amazing time to think that out of all the times in human history, that God planned for us to be here at this point in human history. And I think that can be scary if, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, because certainly the Bible says that as we move closer to the return of the Lord, it, it's going to get more difficult, not easier. But it's also sort of cool to know that, wow, but what a great opportunity I have. And yet in that mix, we have to realize that let's not start to 
get on each other. Let's encourage each other. Let's share with each other. Let's help each other out. And then finally tonight, use your God-given gifts to bless others. Verse 10. Just as each one of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. He's simply saying this. Guys, God has given every one of us a spiritual gift, at least one. Find out what it is. Use it. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, I would encourage you to go through the Discovering Your Gift class here at Cornerstone. They will help you to find out what your gift or gifts are. And then you can tap into those gifts. Now notice in this passage also that primarily, and again, please understand I'm speaking generally, the gifts can fall into primarily two categories. Serving gifts, speaking gifts. Or how I like to put it, behind-the-scenes gifts, upfront gifts. And listen. Not one is more important than the other. Alright? So those who have upfront gifts in the church are not more important than those who are serving faithfully behind the scenes. Different gifts, same Spirit, same Lord, and God is going to reward us for our faithfulness. What Peter is simply saying is this. If God has given you an upfront gift then please depend upon the Lord and use His power to do it. If God has given you a behind-the-scenes gift, then please depend upon the Lord and use the strength that He supplies for it. Again, so that He gets all the glory. So that I'm not trying to build myself up and say, look how great I am. That's not the purpose. And that's why Paul had to write a big chunk to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians and say, you're probably the most gifted church that God ever made, but you're using your gifts to build up yourself. You're using your gift that God gave you to say, look at me, look at how wonder, look at what I... Isn't the body of Christ lucky to have me? And God says, no, it's a gift. It's a gift. You and I can't take credit for it. We didn't do anything for it because it's a gift of His grace. We didn't earn it. God just gave it to us so that people could look at us using our gift and go, wow, what a great God. Don't worship the gift. Don't worship the person who's using the gift. Worship worship the one who gave the gift. Worship the God behind the gift. That's what Peter wants us to keep in mind as we go through these tough days. All right, we'll pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 4 next week. Comments, questions? Yes, Peter. Uh, you said something like you believe that the uh, time is near. Yeah. Well, 2,000 years ago, I think Peter said there is. The last days are here. All things is near. Right. When you study the the scheme of prophecy, here's what Jesus would say to that. Yeah, since Jesus came, technically the Bible calls that the last days. So if you read, we're in the last days, they've been saying we're in the last days for 2,000 years. 
But the Bible also, and if you study what Jesus taught about prophecy, he also said this. But when you see a fig tree and you begin to see some buds and you begin to see some things happen, then you know that it is a little bit closer than what it was 2,000 years ago. And so there are some things happening. For instance, just an example. In the Old Testament, the Bible prophesied that one of the things that had to happen to start putting all this in motion was that Israel had to become a nation again and have its own land in the Middle East. Well, up until 1947 or 48, guess what? People were like, well, you know. And now, since 1947, 1948, when Israel became a nation, guess what? In my mind, that was one of those buds on the fig tree, you see. Uh, The other thing, the Bible in the Old Testament predicted that there would be a United Nations of Europe as part of the economy of the last days. And what have we seen in the last couple of years? The borders of, the, of Europe have come down. The euro is now the common currency. Europe is becoming more and more united. So even though the Bible technically says that we've been living in the last days for a couple thousand years because since Jesus came, according to God's economy, it's the last days, we know it's getting closer because of some of these other things. The other thing the Bible says in Daniel is that the increase of knowledge would increase exponentially as Jesus return was closer. And even today, we were thinking, do you realize for people, because I was thinking about this since it was my birthday tomorrow, how old I'm going to (laughs) be, that for people, let's say, who are close to 100, what changes they have seen since 1906? I mean, there was no such thing as flight, and now, you know, we're taking space shuttles, and we're going to the moon. I mean, for my grandparents... They were sitting there in 1969 when we landed on the moon just like, I mean, because the increase of knowledge is just way beyond. You know, the other day, we were, I was watching something on the news, they were saying, we're the 40th anniversary of Star Trek. And I remember as a little boy watching Star Trek, and they would have those little communicators, and I'm thinking, that's what a cell phone is today. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just amazing. And so what, it's just another bud on the fig tree. Just another bud on the fig tree. Good stuff, guys. Well, I need to open this present because my wife said I need to open this up. So, by the way, thank you guys. I, I really love you guys and appreciate you guys. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I need to start lifting weights. This is a book. A complete photographic history of the Civil War. Thank you. Thank you. That's from Mike and Pam. Thank you very much. For those of you that don't know, I am a Civil War fanatic, shall we say. Uh, At one time, I was actually studying to become a battlefield guide at at Gettysburg. Uh, I used to take tours when we... We live our whole life back east, and I used to take tours from... uh, uh, down to the battlefield of Gettysburg and do tours. Well, when I let some people on staff know this... Uh, just to let you know, you'll probably be hearing, not soon, soon, but I'd say probably within the year, that uh, they're actually planning on offering for anybody from Cornerstone that wants to go, uh, like a, almost a week-long trip back east, and we're going to go to like the nation's capital and Gettysburg and places like that, and I'm going to take you guys on a tour 
uh, showing you uh, some history and Christian history and stuff like that. So I'm really looking forward to that because uh, I've run into a lot of people out west here who uh, have you know not been to Philadelphia and Boston and Washington and all those places that I've been to. Oh my golly, my family will tell you they they've been to Gettysburg Battlefield over a hundred times. <laughs> And my kids used to be like, Dad, are we going back to Gettysburg again? But I tease them now because guess what? They got an A in U.S. history. So, you know, thanks. But uh, I love history. And I, I am thankful that I grew up uh, right where the history of our country and the start of our country took place. Uh, but I'm glad to be out here now. I've got the whole West Coast to explore and uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that in the years ahead, Lord willing. But thank you guys very much. And let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? And please, I'm not taking all those cupcakes home. So please grab another cupcake on your way out, shall we? All right, Father God, thank you so much for just, Lord, giving us your word. Uh, Lord, as we think about even another motivation for studying your word, we think, you know... If I was a human author, one of the best compliments that anyone could give me is, I've read your book. And Lord, I think one of the best compliments, if you will, that we could give you is that we've read your book. And Father, we enjoy reading it. We love it. We want to make it such an integral part of our life. And Father, I pray that that's part of what the mind is all about each week that we are using this Bible study on Tuesday night to connect people with the Word of God, to whet their appetite, to, to excite them about the Bible, to get them into the Bible maybe a little bit more than what they would be otherwise, to begin to get them to think about the Bible. Because, Lord, we know that we can't cover everything that we would like to cover every Tuesday night. We skip over so much. But, Lord, the purpose of this is just to get these folks excited on their own to just dive into the Bible throughout the week until they come back the next week. And so, Lord, I just thank you for their faithfulness, for, Lord, just bringing them out every week after a long day. And, Father, just bless them and take us all home safely tonight and just give us a great week. Help us to just rejoice in the fact that we can talk to you in prayer and we got your word. And, Father, may we just use these tools that we've been given so that, Lord, we might not faint and give up, but that we might persevere and endure. And Lord, help us to meet back here next Tuesday, excited once again to get back into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. You've been great. You've been great.